Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Everybody, welcome back to another episode of New Books on Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am your host today, Jingyi Lee from the University of Arizona. In today's episode, we have Dr. Johanna Zueta with us to talk about her new book, Traditional Identities on Okinawa's Military Bases, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2020. Dr. Zueta is currently an associate professor at Soka University in Japan, researching and teaching about sociology and anthropology. So this book explores the complexity and historical context of the identities of individuals that work on the U.S. military base in Okinawa, Japan. Many of these individuals have both Filipino and Okinawa heritage, and find themselves caught in between the Japanese and Filipino society. By focusing on the role of migration in constructing these individuals' identities, Dr. Zueta discusses the transnationality of capital and network that were built around the bases. So welcome. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you very much, Jingyi, for inviting me. So I um this book is so very interesting. There there's so much I want to ask you about. But before talking about your project, I'd like to get to know you a bit more. Um so what do you do and what brought you to Japanese studies? Okay, so as you've introduced um, me a while ago, um I am a sociologist and I teach um sociology. And I also do more do research about Japan. So I also, you know, when I teach, uh, most of my case studies are based on um, Japan. So what brought me to Japanese studies? Um, I always tell people that it's an accident. I it I got interested in Jap- interested in Japan because of yeah accidentally. Um, that was because um during my undergrad years we were asked to um, register or to take up foreign language courses. And my first choice was actually Mandarin because of uh, my ethnicity. Um, And I don't know anything about China or Mandarin. But then the schedule wasn't really good. So it didn't, um, the Mandarin classes didn't fit my schedule. So I decided to take up Japanese instead, since my friends were also taking up Japanese. Um, And it was um, a popular choice during my time. And that was, I think, almost 20 years ago or more than 20 years ago. And so I took Japanese as a foreign language. I was a sophomore then in college. And then my teacher was really um, a very effective teacher. And then I began to learn, you know, as I was um, learning the language, I began to love the language. And also she would talk about the culture as well. And so because I was a sociology student during that time, I became interested in the complexities of Japanese society and culture, and especially with with the mix of the traditional 
or old culture and the new um, high-tech culture. So I, I was pretty much young then. So that's how I saw Japan. And so I decided to take, um, you know, um, a master's. I decided to go into graduate school to do more research about Japan. And I also did an exchange program. I came here for a year um, at ICU, um, International Christian University, to, to study the language more and also the culture more. And then I went back home, did my research, um, uh, finished my first uh, master's. And my thesis then was um, about the Okinawan community in the Philippines. But prior to that, I was more interested in the hidden Christians in Nagasaki. Um, being Christian myself, being Catholic myself, I became interested in, in that, you know, part of Japanese society. But then during that time, I couldn't do research. I couldn't come to Japan to do research. So I decided, and my, my professor also decided to just, you know, change my topic. And then she told me, you know, why don't you look into this Okinawan community in the Philippines? Because it hasn't been looked into. And that started my interest in Okinawa when I was doing my um, first master's. That's very fascinating that you have such a colorful background. And I think it's definitely reflected in your book where you discuss these um, these space workers who also have very colorful backgrounds. Um, so how what part of Okinawa attracted you so much that you decided to write a book on it? Okay, so what attracted me to Okinawa was the fact that, um, you know, it it's it's placed in Japanese society as or in the Japanese national polity as being marginalized because of its history, right? And because of its difference, its perceived cultural and ethnic difference. And um, when I was when I was um, reading about Okinawan history, Okinawan culture, I I. I realized that Okinawa is very, very different and then that it's not really that well known in this part of the world. I mean, I, I was talking about um, um, Southeast Asia and the Philippines. So very, very few people know about it. So I said I have to do more research about it. And also because I've, I was interested in, until now, I am interested in issues about marginalization, um, ethnic identity, um, ethnicity, difference, so that that's um, what attracted me to, to Okinawa, and I decided to do more research on it. And and yeah, and I decided to come to Japan to do my graduate studies. And after that, um, yeah, when I came to Japan, Hitotsubashi to to do my well, it's my second MA and and and, uh, and a PhD. I decided to look more into this issue and focus on. Um, the base workers in in Okinawa who are actually half Filipino and half Okinawans. Their mothers are Okinawans because this this issue is not very much well known in Japan as well as in the Philippines and probably worldwide. And that led me to do more research on Okinawa and you know what led to the current book project. That's really great. And I definitely agree that this issue of uh, Okinawa-based workers aren't receiving enough attention, whether in academia or in society, in the, um, in the media. 
um, we often see in the news when there is another protest around the base, um, but or or um, security issues that many um, of these protests are around. But none of them mention who are actually working on these bases. So you mention in the book that uh, the role that immigration played in the years that the um, U.S. military base was built and maintained in Okinawa. Could you give us more details about this immigration process and especially how Filipino workers got involved in this process? Okay, um, thank you for that question. I argued in the book that, you know, military basing in Okinawa, the occupation of Okinawa, um, the American occupation of Okinawa should be seen as a transnational project. Um, because in, in studies about Okinawa, particularly about the U.S. military bases, it's usually seen as an issue between the U.S. and Japan, right? U.S. and Jap- Japanese governments. Um, so it's pretty much um, seen in that kind of dichotomy. But I also, and also um, it's usually seen from um, a more international relations perspective or political science or historical perspective. But I chose to see it as, as I've mentioned, it's a transnational project. I also chose to see it from the perspective of migration because it also engendered a lot of migration within the region especially during the occupation of Okinawa when you, of course, um, military basing needs workers to construct the base. And you have the Americans, you have the local nationals, meaning the Okinawans themselves, and they also had to hire so-called third-country nationals or people who are outside Okinawa and who are non-American and non-Okinawans. So, they hired people from the Philippines, from India, people from all over the world, I think even including mainland China and even Taiwan, to work on the construction of the bases as well as to staff the bases as you know workers, such as engineers, such as store clerks. And many of these people came from the Philippines because the Philippines was um, an American colony. And obviously, um, because of... Um, five decades of colonial rule. Um, Filipinos are proficient in the language, in English, as well as they are familiar with American cultural norms. So in a way, they, they were actually favored along with the Indians, Indian nationals. And so there were a lot of Filipinos who went to Okinawa to work on base, both for the construction and the staffing of bases. And this was also, of course, um, 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 an agreement between the U.S. government, the U.S. occupation government, and the Philippine government. And when I was doing research for this book, um, I also looked at, I also did archival research and looked at some unclassified um, documents or you know letters, um, state-to-state um, agreements between the Philippines and the the U.S. occupation government, asking, I mean, about about um, sending. Um, migrant labor. And these, as I've mentioned, these um, migrant labor, they were called third country nationals during that time because they were not Japanese, they were not Okinawans, and they were not um, Americans. And so I argued that in the book that 
it's pretty much transnational and we have to look at it from a migration perspective as well because it this is because um yeah it's because of the american occupation of okinawa that you had a lot of a lot of these migrations happening during that time and that was the post war years right 19 late 1940s to 50s so so that's it wow i was i was really surprised actually when um reading the book because i had never thought that um well apart from the military base being on Okinawa land, taking Okinawa resources and using Okinawa labor. I never really um, think about the, the, I guess, in a way, it's the results from colonialism, how it's still affecting people who were a part of that colonialism. Um, so in the beginning of our little chat, I summarized your book really briefly, um um could you tell us um or summarize uh, more of the book for us the part that you explore the uh, uh the identities of third national third country nationals on the, the basis okay yes um I think in some chapters of the book, I talked about the identities of these um, base workers. And as he, um, I also mentioned, and I think you also mentioned last time, that many of these um, bases that, uh, I'm sorry, base workers that I interviewed are Japanese nationals. So in effect, they're not anymore um, third country national be- nationals because they're Japanese. Legally, they're Japanese nationals. And they are part of the so-called United States Forces in Japan employees. So they're basically, yes, employees of the um, working for the United States Forces in Japan. Um, and with regards to nationality, for these people, um, yeah, I, I, I argued in the book that when we talk about Japanese nationality, it's we have to challenge what that means because... We always think of nationality in the Japanese sense as a conflation of ethnicity, citizenship, culture, language. But then, you know, with, with, with regards to Japanese nationality, now who is a Japanese? Right? We always ask that question, who is a Japanese? It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty complex now, especially now that you have these so-called half-individuals who are Japanese legally, but probably culturally they are not Japanese anymore because they might not be proficient in the language or they do not know um, um, a lot of Japanese cultural norms or they are actually, um, they're, they're, one of their parents is not Japanese. And this is what I dealt with in the book, that if you look at, let's say, base workers, many or most of them are Japanese. You know, the, the, those the what those civilian workers. Um, I also mentioned in the book that um, most of these bases, the bases are actually um, right now being supported by the Japanese government in terms of you know financial resources. And they also pay for the civilian workers on base, the Japanese workers on base. 
And for these Japanese workers on base, when you look at their nationality, of course, they're Japanese. But then if you look at their background, many of them are, you know, they, they actually have um, Okinawan and Filipino parentage. And by looking at this case, we can also look into the the complexities of Japanese nationality and who, who a Japanese is or who an Okinawan is, right? That we, we have to veer away from that perspective of seeing a Japanese or an Okinawan as, if I may use the word, pure, because, you know, times are changing and because of U.S. military basing, these people who are so-called half were, were actually born. Yeah, that's it. Wow, there's so much um, in what you just said that I want to get more details about. So I guess I can start with this question. Um, so you mentioned, and this I actually did not know before you mentioned it, that um, the Japanese government is actually paying for these base workers, even though they're working for... Um, U.S. military bases. Um, I guess this ties into my next question. Um, in Chapter 6, you introduce how the, these base workers fit into the labor system of both Japan and the U.S. So could you give us a bit more overview of this labor system and why are these issues... What are some issues that this might bring? when it comes to um, these base, base workers with um, Filipino and Japanese heritage. Okay, um, thank you for that. Yes, in Chapter 6, I talked about how these base workers are hired. Um, and then there's this um, special agency, um, the Labor Management Organization, um, which is you know, tasked to hire um, USFJ employees or United States Forces in Japan employees. So they are hired by the Japanese government through the Ministry of Defense. Um, it seems that they are government workers, but they are not really considered komuin or civil servants. They are um, of a different um, type of workers. But they are, of course, um, funded by the Japanese government, meaning they they are... They, they get their salaries from the Japanese government. And how this plays into the, the whole base issue or military basing, because they are needed to support. They're, they're actually support the support force for the United States military in Japan because they're the ones um, you know, doing all the technical work, whether it's IT whether it's um, working in restaurants, in shops, within the base, um, whether um, you also have um, people working in recreational facilities on base, so you also need these workers there. So without them, the bases could not function because it's a really, it's a, it's it's really one big, how do you call it? It's like one big society, or if if we can use that term, wherein you have that you have the military, and you also have the civilian workers, um, making things work for for the 
for U.S. forces in Japan, in, in Japan, station in Japan. So, so yes, so it's really, it's really going to be tough. Again, th- this is a very much contentious issue because many people want to, want to get rid of the bases in Okinawa. So if we talk about Okinawa, you have people saying, oh, they, we have to um, get rid of the bases here in Okinawa. We don't need the bases. But then on the other hand, the bases also provide jobs for, for many of these Okinawans. And in fact, in Okinawa, um, a base job is like, um, it's, they, they, use, they use the term akogare, meaning it's being longed for. So unla- unlike in the mainland where in they don't really care much about base work, in Okinawa, people would want to work on base because um, it pays well, especially for the base towns or towns in Okinawa where in um, they, they host the bases such as Okinawa City, Ginoan City, even a town as small as Kin, K-I-N. Um, many of these, you know, um, the people living near these bases, they usually work inside the bases or they have businesses that cater to um, the U.S. military. So it's really part of Okinawan society. It's really part of their livelihood. So it's it's really a big issue when you talk about labor um, because it's, it's, it's really income generating for many Okinawans and and um, they, they, a lot of them work there. So take away the basis what will happen. And this is also what my informants told me, that they are pro-base because their livelihood depends on the basis. And um, yeah, they, they even told me that during elections, they, they vote for people who are officials who, or politicians who are pro-base. Because obviously, they want the basis to be maintained because their livelihood counts on, on it. I hope I answered your question. Yeah, that's that's astonishing to know. Um, is this? Do you think the same or a similar situation is happening on to base workers of the other military bases in Japan, or is it? A special case for Okinawa? Yes, that's a good question. Um, I mentioned earlier that in the case of the mainland, not much people are are really bent on working on base. Um, that's also due to the fact that if you look at the bases on the mainland, they're very much dispersed from Hokkaido to 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 yeah to Kyushu. Okay. Um, but in Okinawa, you have almost 70% of all the U.S. bases in Japan in that small island of Okinawa. And we also know that unemployment rate in Okinawa is pretty much high. Um, the last time I checked, it's higher than the national average. Um, and and in, on the mainland, you have a lot of job opportunities. It's not only the bases. In, in Okinawa, especially for, for, for the for the generation now, right? Um, the current generation, they were already born with, with this environment around them that they 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 live alongside the bases, and and yes, because base work pays more, so it's 
it's like um, it's it's one of the few options available for them. Of course, there's also tourism, and also yeah, it's either that or they leave the prefecture and work in the mainland, which many of them are doing. And so because of less opportunities compared to the mainland, the bases um, are a source of um, yeah significant it's it's a significant source of um, job opportunities. So it's not only working inside the bases, but also, you know, if they have, let's say, businesses that cater to um, the Americans, the service men and women, then they also, we can also argue that, yeah, they depend on the basis for their livelihood. So, yeah, I hope that's clear. So would you then consider this as one of the main reasons that the issues concerning base workers aren't receiving enough attention from the Japanese society that um that in the mainland or outside of the base outside of Okinawa they don't have to worry about the um opportunities that's brought by the bases Yes, um, I think I think that's one, and also, yeah, because um, because in the mainland you have more opportunities, and also it's, I I think, um, base work is actually hidden because um, bases are, people see it as an enclave, right? You don't actually know what's going on there. Not not anyone can enter, just freely enter the bases. Um, so for people in the mainland, the way I see it, they don't know what's happening inside the bases. Even, even in Okinawa, you can't just enter these bases unless you have like a permit or a work inside, inside the bases. So that's, that's why I think, um, people are not that conscious about base workers, especially in the mainland, because, um, as I've said, bases are dispersed. Unless you live in um in a town where or which hosts the military base or let's say like Yokosuka in Kanagawa Prefecture or Tokyo also has um Yokota Air Base, which is um in Fusa City. So people surrounding that, so probably they know people working on base. Um unlike in Okinawa where where you are actually literally surrounded by a lot of these military installations. So it's like um, a part of life that your neighbor or probably one of one of your kin or family member works on base. So that's also what I felt when doing research in, in Okinawa, right? Um, people here and there, they work on base or they know someone who works on base. So it's pretty much, um, yeah, because it's a very much ubiquitous existence as compared to the mainland. Unless, of course, you're living close to one of these um, military installations. And again, um, the military installations in the mainland are quite dispersed compared to the ones in Okinawa. That's, that, that, that's right. That's, I can't begin to imagine how different life must be for these for not just space workers but also like you say people whose family family members are base workers and i understand that 
um, from the book, I understand that a large part of your, of your research is not just on um, the the labor system constituting the whole uh, base worker labor system, but also the the internal struggles of these base workers. So you look at them not just as a generic group of base workers, but they're actual persons who, like your book writes, are struggling, um, and in this particular case, struggling between their Filipino heritage and their identity as partially Japanese, perhaps partially uh, connected to still third country nationals, can you tell us more about the complexity of their identities and why it's such an important issue when we consider the role of um, U.S. military bases in Japan? Okay, thank you for that. Um, yes, this is um, in the book. I argue that they are that my my informants are the other to the admiration and. If you talk about the admiration, especially in Okinawa, it's it's a very contentious issue because, um, well, first, what is an admiration? An admiration is someone who is or who was born to an American serviceman, usually male, and then an, an Asian woman. And this is because of military basing in Asia. So you have Vietnamese admirations, you have Korean admirations, you have Japanese admirations, you have Filipino admirations. Um, and so you have this group of individuals who were born because of the presence of the U.S. military bases in the region. Um, but I also argue that beyond this or beneath this admiration um, category, you also have people who were born because of, of military basing, but then their fathers were not Americans. Rather, they are, let's say, Indians or Filipinos but they worked alongside the Americans, the Allied forces. So I, 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 told, I said in the book that they are the other to the Americans. And for these individuals of um, Okinawan and Filipino parentage, again, their, their mothers are Okinawans, their fathers are um, Filipinos who worked on base. Um, there are a lot of um, issues in terms of or with regards to their identity. One is growing up in Okinawa um, as a child of, you know, a Filipino and an Okinawan mother. Although, even though they are not conspicuously different, meaning they don't physically look different as compared to when you are, let's say, half Caucasian or half Black. Um, it's, 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 um, so, so in a way, they're not that conspicuous. But in terms of language, for instance, right? So in terms of language, many of them are not familiar with the Japanese language, especially when they returned. Um, so that's an, that's an issue when they return as adults. When they were growing up, some of them, um, I remembered I, I told about the story of Marco, who was schooled in an international school, but he was actually speaking Japanese at home. But then, while speaking Japanese at home, he had a Filipino name. So that really disturbed his identity. 
imagine going to an international school speaking English, but at home they speak in Japanese, but then he has a Filipino name. So he was questioning, um, he had all these questions about his identity. And then for those who, they grew up in Okinawa, yeah, they, they, they grew up in Okinawa, but they had to, they had to go to the Philippines, their their dad's um, homeland, because the because the the contracts, the work contracts of their fathers expired. So for for those who went home in the fifties, they also experienced discrimination because because of the atrocities committed by the Japanese and the Filipinos thought that they were actually half Japanese. And that they're, you know, that they're, that they're connected to the the, the war atrocities that that the, that the Japanese soldiers committed in in that part of the world. So they also had um, um, that bullying issue, discrimination. And then coming back as adults when they were in their twenties or in their thirties to work on base, while on base they were not really discriminated against. So far, they did not tell me anything about discrimination but they told me that because they do not know or they are not familiar or not fluent in Japanese um, outside they were they, they they were treated as foreigners even though they have Japanese nationality and then yeah they I, I, as I as I described them in 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 the book they are legally Japanese but culturally they are not because yeah, culturally they, they act differently. Um, they also somehow imbibed um, base culture. So whatever the culture is on base, which is pretty much American but also multicultural. So on base they 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 are able to you know be let's say themselves because they can easily um, interact with the Americans and with the other Japanese or Okinawans who speak English, but uh, but then outside, it's um it's a totally different world for them. That is why, in one of the chapters, um, I think one one quote that stood out, or when I was interviewing these um, my informants, Raphael mentioned that we um Okinawans are a minority in Okinawa and we are a minority in Okinawa. So it's like we are a minority within a minority. Um, so a double minority status in Okinawa because Okinawans are a minority in the whole of Japan and then they are a minority in, in Okinawa. So so that's what I um, discuss in the book. Double minority and I also mentioned that these people are invisible primarily because not many people know about their existence. That you know, you, you know, you have these base workers who are actually half Japanese or half Okinawan, half Filipinos. Although in Okinawa, many of them, I mean, in Okinawa, their existence is kind of known because because Okinawans live among them. But then, gener- generally speaking, um, I said they are they are invisible in that regard because not many people know about about um, them. So I hope I answered that question. That must, yes, thank you. That must be so difficult for these people to be struggling, to be torn between the Japanese society, Japanese culture, and their own culture, or if they even feel that they belong to any of their own culture, 
and you just mentioned some examples, some individuals, and from your book, I can tell that you did a lot of interviews um, on these base workers. Are there any story that stood out in particular to you when you were exploring this issue? Yes, um, I mentioned the issue, or I mentioned the story of Marco, who, yeah, the, the, the person I mentioned earlier who studied in an international school, and then, but he was talking to his parents, I mean, to his Okinawan mother and Filipino father in Japanese at home. But then he had a Filipino name, so he was um, quite puzzled um, about his identity, and it was at a very young age. And then... Um, I also mentioned Rafael. Rafael, um, yeah, he, he was talking to me about being born in Okinawa and had to move to the Philippines um, when he was still a child. And when he came back to, you know, when he, when he came back to Okinawa, he, he said he needed, he needed um, some documents to go back to his home. Um, because it was still, uh, um, yeah, it, it, he it was already I think during the reversion period, and he also mentioned about um, being being given an automatic um, citizenship or passport, Japanese nationality, because his mother is Okinawan, and it's not only that; it's also be, it's also connected to the fact that these individuals were listed in their mother's family registry, or in Japanese, it's called Koseki Tohon. Um, I also mentioned in the book that nationality has become automatic for these individuals, primarily for those who were born out of wedlock, so illegitimate. And, and they even told me that I was able to acquire Japanese nationality because I was born before my parents got married. And because they're, they're, um, they were born before their parents got married, so they were listed under their mother's family registry. Because during that time, that, that was in the 1950s, if, you're, if you were born with um, a foreign father, then and you were born with a foreign father after your parents married, then you take on the nationality of the father. So that means, um, especially, and some of some of these individuals are not registered in under their mother's kosekitohon, um, and because of that, it would be difficult to claim Japanese nationality after your parents get married. So you really have to prove um, that you are that you're one of you, that your mother is Okinawan. And I also came across um, some of my informants who had that kind of problem. But for those who were born before their parents got married, it was somehow much easier because they just presented the documents and then um, the officials, the immigration officials, or yeah, saw that, okay, they are listed under their mother's family registry, so they are Japanese. And so it was easy for them. That is what, and even one of them said that it's automatic. So those were the stories that I've that I heard, and that it really, it it was really interesting, because um, they were talking about how illegitimacy, in a way, 
um, made it easier for them to acquire Japanese nationality. And, and, and because of that, I also, you know, um, looked at some other cases. And there were, in fact, other cases that are similar because of the Japanese nationality law during that time, um, which was, of course, changed now. Uh, but before, because of that, because of the law, and then, yeah, it, um, um, so so in a way, because they um, they were born before their parents got married, so the the law did not apply to them, and so yeah, they were able to acquire um, Japanese nationality by virtue of being listed in the in her in in their mother's um kosekito. So those were some of the um the stories that that you know that that's connected to nationality and also identity okay i hope i answered that, um your question yeah yeah of course it's just this is such a complicated issue with so many layers to unpack and i am really amazed how you were able to explain all of these um very neatly in your book I really wish we had more time to discuss um, your book, but um, allow me to just ask one last question. So looking into the future for these base workers, what do you think are some possible ways that the Japanese society can do, um, or maybe even the world can do to help solve the identity crises of base workers? And how do you think uh, this barrier between the base and the other side outside of the base could be broken. Okay, um thank you for that um question. That's that's really um a thought provoking question. So for the identities of my my informants, my base worker informants, uh in my book I I I call them Mise or second generation in Japanese. Primarily because that's also how they identify themselves. Um as Mise, meaning they're their their Issei uh, mother is Okinawan, and so they are Nisei, meaning second generation Okinawan. So they, they got that term from that, um, yeah, from their Okinawan parentage. That's why they use the term Nisei. So in 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 the case of the identity of these kinds of base workers, um, especially for the next generation of base workers, the Sansei. Um, yeah, many of these Niseis have, you know, children who work on base now. Yeah, because um, the Nisei, my informants, are have retired or are soon to retire. And so the next generation may also have these um, issues about identity. Um, I, I think what what is important to note is that yeah, when you talk about um, workers, these kinds of civilian workers on base, um, and then even though we know that they're Japanese, we also have to to think um, who really is Japanese, how what is our understanding of Japanese? Because um, yeah, just seeing this case of um, these Nisei base workers, they're actually half, and they're not. And, and I'm pretty sure you also have a lot of these kinds of, or different kinds of half, maybe half Japanese, half Americans working on bases or working on base in Okinawa. Um, and so that challenge us to think about identity from a, 
from um, a Japanese perspective or a Japanese context. Um, and also, yeah, with, with regards to to looking at or how do we tear down the walls between the bases and, let's say, local society. Um, looking from an Okinawan perspective or um, the context of Okinawa, um, yes, it's really difficult because, as I've said, um, the bases are an enclave, so we don't really know what is happening on base. Um, it's a complex issue in Okinawa because, on the one hand, people who work on base are admired because you know they they are they are able to live um, quite you know good lives in terms of I mean financially, like not yeah middle class affluent lives, but at the same time some of them. Some people um, don't have um, good, um, maybe they, they don't see base work as um, a good thing, especially if they're anti-base because they see that people who work on base, oh, they're probably pro-base. So you have that um, really contentious issue. Um, and, and again, people who work alongside the military in, in Okinawa, Right, as civilian workers, or if they're married to a serviceman, they're also seen differently. Um, and you have all these works, um, you know, talking about these kinds of um, issues. So, how do we tear down the, the walls? I think it's, uh, um, I think more awareness is needed, um, and people should should look at this base issue as a really complex thing. Um, and it we shouldn't just look at it from um, an anti or a pro-base perspective, but there are a lot of um, issues um, that's connected to this, this, this particular topic. Um, on the one hand, you also have the U.S. military um, trying to reach out to the Okinawan community by by learning more about, I think, about, about Okinawa. But I know that there are some um, activities that, that these um, servicemen or the bases, um, they, they try to reach out um, to, the, to the community where, where they're in. So, for example, they also have like open, open base, how, how do you call it? Um, some sort of like an open house event wherein they open the bases to the locals so that the locals can enter. And these, I don't know if it happened last year because of COVID, but, but, but they, they hold these kinds of events. So, so yes, and also um, I think it's really, um, I, I don't, I don't really, because I don't live in Okinawa, so it's, it's, I think it's mostly um, trying to reach an understanding um, between people who are outside the bases and people who work on on base. So, so trying. I think it's more really information, and that's why I also wrote this book because um, we when again when we talk about the base, where our 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 we, we, we always think about the military. And especially if we talk about Okinawa and the base issue, it's always, okay, U.S. military. 
committing atrocities. But then, what about the people who make their living inside the bases? What do they think about the bases? And so, and what 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 are they? What are they experiencing? So that's why I I wrote about this this book, which was you know which which was um which is a culmination of my my graduate school years. Yeah, my graduate school research to to hopefully inform um people that you know you have this you have these civilian workers and this is how they think about the base issue and this is how they think about Okinawan society this is how they think about being Okinawan being Japanese and this is just one part of the story and hopefully um yeah we can we can you know promote this sort of coexistence uh, among these people among these entities in Okinawa I hope um, I I answered your question. Yeah, I think I think that was that was very that was great to hear. I definitely think that your work is very important. I'm so glad that um, you're writing this book and calling for more attention on this issue, and that well, I guess there are. Um, in some way, um, efforts to connect the base and the outside of the base. I definitely hope that your research receive more um, attention, not just from academia, but also from ordinary, I, I can't really say ordinary people, but um, media and um just everyday people yes um thank you jingy and and yes um that's why i also agreed to do this podcast so hopefully um, my research will also reach out to um a lot of people because so far i've been talking to academics if not academics um students so i mean to to a larger um audience i, I still think i need to to do more work so as to make people more aware about this issue. Thank you. I believe that will definitely happen. Thank um, you very much. Yeah. No, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you for telling us all about this issue that so few people know about. It was really a pleasure reading your book and I learned so much from your book. Yeah, same here. It's it's been a pleasure to you know talk to you about uh, my book, and thank you very much for those questions. They yeah, I think they're very much important questions. Thank you, and for our listeners, if you're interested in learning more about immigration and um, workers on the U.S. military bases of Okinawa, make sure to check out this book, Traditional Identities on Okinawa's Military Bases. This is Jenny Lee from New Books on Japanese Studies. Until our next episode, goodbye.